morning. Good morning. I invite you guys to have a seat as we come back together and dig into God's Word. Well, we've been walking through a series uh, called the Red Letter Series, and in it, we are asking the question, what if Jesus really meant what he said? You see, Jesus makes a lot of countercultural, a lot of radical statements, and this series is looking deeper at what our Messiah, what the Son of God, had to say. You know, when Pastor Brad and I, at the beginning of every message, uh, before I come up and speak, and afterwards, we kind of dialogue about, uh, about preaching and what's going on, and then afterwards, uh, we'll, we'll talk about it again. And after the last time we talked about it, we got together and I said, well, you know, Brad, um, I wouldn't mind, you know, no, a challenging passage, one that, you know, is not necessarily my niche, something that can really challenge me. Yeah, I did ask for it. And the moral of the story is, be careful what you wish for. Today we're going to look at what Jesus says about family in Mark 3. And you might be saying, Mike, family, I think it's pretty clear what the Bible says about family. I mean, we are called to love, to respect, and to support our family. Well, let's dig right into the text today, and let's see if we couldn't find some challenging parts to look at. Before we do, I want to give you some context to our passage. In Mark and throughout the Gospels, we see that Jesus has a magnetic personality. Everybody wants to follow and see what Jesus has to say. He does miracles, he casts out demons, and he is Holy Spirit-inspired in what he says. He commands his audience. Well, with that, he also creates some enemies, and it starts right there in Mark 3. In Mark 3, right at the beginning of our dialogue on Jesus' story as Mark presents it, The Pharisees and the Herodians hate his message so much that right off the bat, they plot to kill him. In the very next breath, we see that not only are the Pharisees and the Herodians wanting to kill Jesus, but that the rest of the teachers of law try to convince the crowd that Jesus is possessed by none other than Satan himself. That's a, that's a good start. When you're thinking of the uh, culture of the day and just how uh, powerful these leaders were in first century Palestine, in Jerusalem, these are the wrong people to make mad. Mark, 20, uh, Mark 3 verse 20 says that Jesus entered a house, and we don't know what this house was, whose house it was, But we do know one thing, that it was packed. It says again, a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. Then his family was told about what Jesus was doing. 
stirring up the crowd, causing a ruckus amongst the religious leaders. And Mark 3.21 says that his family went to take charge of him. For they said, he's out of his mind. In the time that Jesus' family takes to go from where they were, where they were told what Jesus was doing, to the location where Jesus was speaking at and hanging out with the crowds, a story transpires. And it's the story where the crowd is hanging out and listening to Jesus, but these teachers of the law say, you know what? He's possessed by Satan. This is a story right before family gets there. And Jesus in his Holy Spirit-inspired speech and just his eloquent speech puts it back on the religious leaders. They make the, he makes them feel silly by calling them and what they are saying, not them, but what they are saying, ludicrous, and what they are saying, unforgivable blasphemy. This is a tumultuous setting for the family to enter. So Mark 3, verse 31, let's pick, let's pick it up at verse 31. It says, Then Jesus' mother and brother arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Jesus, knowing that his family wanted to take charge of him, knowing that he, they wanted to take him from where he was in his ministry that he was doing and take him aside and talk with him, he didn't go up to them, and he didn't say to them, You know what? Uh, this is what I'm doing. This is my plan. I'll be back at 9 o'clock tonight. Uh, we'll have dinner and then, you know, other stuff. He didn't say that. And he definitely didn't go home. Say, okay, guys, mom says it's time to go home. Jesus responds with an interesting response. He says, who are my brother, my mother and my brothers? Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him and he said, here are my mother's. And my brothers, whoever does the will, do, does God's will, is my brother and sister and mother. Wait, did Jesus just do what I think he did? Did Jesus just snub his family? Did he just reject his family right there? Doesn't the Bible talk about honoring your father and mother? Deuteronomy 21, verse 18, 21 says, Honor your father and mother. I mean, this must be, it must be a translation error. Let's look at another account. Let's look at uh, Matthew 12, verse 48 to 50. It says, He replied to him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to the disciples, he said, Here are my mothers and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother's. Okay, same idea. So we can't, we can't use... Ma- well, let, let's go to Luke. Luke, help us out, man. Uh, let's get something different. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, if anyone doesn't hate father and mother, wife and child, brothers and sisters, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And so you see, as we talk about family and the challengingness about it, uh, yeah, this is a tough subject. 
In the words of a great theologian, Scooby-Doo, Oh, Raggy! That's what I think of when I, when I saw that passage. Surely there's another explanation for this. The Bible is one book. It does not contradict itself, does it? I mean, all scripture is God-breathed. It's the living word of God. It's living and active, not just for back then, but for today. How do we deal with this? The Bible can't be in one breath saying, honor your father and mother, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You want to put that on there? Love your wife as uh, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And state the fact that being a good husband and a good dad is a prerequisite for actually being in ministry, as Paul tells us. And on top of all of that, Jesus says hating is the same as murder. How can he say all of that in Scripture and then have this statement that says hate your family, reject your non-Christian biological family? That's our challenge this morning as we discuss this. Brothers and sisters, to be able to deal with this, we need to lay one ground rule down. You guys ever read Choose Your Own Adventure books? Yeah, I used to love those things. For some strange reason, I always died in four pages. (laughs) But the Bible, it's not a Choose Your Own Adventure book. You cannot just take pieces from the Bible and put together your sense of what Christianity is. We need to look at the Bible in its full context. Because 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All scripture, not part of scripture, all scripture is God breathed. So if we believe this, what can we make of Jesus' amazing claim that he's stating? Let's start with Mark 3, and then we'll go into the, uh, to Luke 14 and look at that. Let's look at the culture of today, of the day in Mark 3. Jesus is preaching a gospel that is radically countercultural. Radically. It is a Jesus revolution going on. I mean, we see this by what I said earlier. The Pharisees and the Herodians wanted to kill him. The rest of the teachers of the law were saying that he was possessed by Satan. You see, in the culture of today, one that eats, breathes, and sleeps Judaism, in the midst of ritualism, a Jewish culture that made so many extra-biblical rules to follow that it was almost impossible, if not impossible, to follow, in a culture that heaped animal sacrifices to be sacrificed while sins were left unrepentant. In a Jewish temple culture that was so greedy and corrupt that Jesus came and threw the temple tables. They were trying to make money off of it. Off the sacrificial system. In a culture that cries for you to do more to earn and, and get God's acceptance more tithing, more temple sacrifice, more following rules. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary. He said, don't worry. Jesus simplified. He said, love God and love others. 
Jesus came and said that you will never measure up to the mark that God gave us, this perfection. But then in his next breath, he said, but don't worry. I'm going to make you worthy because I love you. See, Jesus' gospel that he was the savior of the world and only through him can we have salvation. And that was counter to what the Jewish society believed at the time. You see, the Jews believed that salvation came through the lineage of Abraham, through family, through heredity. And right in that passage, Jesus is preaching that family is no longer biological through the roots of Abraham, but those that do the will of his father by following Jesus himself. What Jesus preached would have ripped families apart for those that believed in Jesus. A Jewish family would see their family member who accepted Christ as abandoning the family face, which would negate their salvation. Their friends and their families who believed in Judaism well would look down on that. In a society run by religious influence, this would put shame on the family. I don't need to tell you how heated this got. They ended up nailing him to a tree. They beat him. They humiliated him. And then Jesus was nailed to a cross because of his countercultural ideas. There was more purpose in it. God's plan all along was for Jesus to uh, defeat death, die on the cross for a sin, and rise from the dead. Don't get me wrong, but they were the instruments to do it. They needed to get rid of this guy that was ripping apart Jewish culture, family. He needed to die. So this is the context of Mark 3. Do you see how tumultuous this, this is? And so Jesus' biological family had to do something. Maybe it was to protect themselves as family, or maybe it was just to protect Jesus himself. But in Mark 3, verse 21, it says, When his family heard of this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of your mind. Out of his mind. The ESV says, they went to seize him because he was out of his mind. So when Jesus, knowing their thoughts, knowing what would happen next, heard that his family was outside, he recognized that they planned to hamper his God-ordained ministry and force him to go home. I think we can bring clarity to Mark 3 by looking at what Jesus says in Matthew 10, verse 37 to 39. It says, Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. We don't, Jesus, I, I really believe that what Jesus was doing here is he was living out, just put, keep that on the, uh, the screen here, the, the Matthew passage. Jesus was living out this passage in real life. What he was doing is he was saying, my God is number one and my family comes second. Jesus is not saying that we should disrespect our family. 
or flat out reject them for everything that we do. All in the name of the kingdom of God. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is that God is number one. And when we seek first the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is with us. What would happen if Jesus, instead of taking on this Matthew 10, 37 to 39 posture, what would happen if he had heeded his mother's wishes, obviously wanting to please his mother, and just headed home, live life as a good carpenter, or at the very least decided, you know what, oh yeah, you're right, I, be- I better go home and, uh, and let things cool down for my family and uh, for myself, for my own life. What if he had done that? Well, we don't know what transpired in the house, what, what he was talking about with the crowd. We do know in John 20 and 21, at the end, there's a caveat that states, if we were to write down everything that Jesus taught and everything Jesus did, it would take up a whole library of books. But what we do know is that right after this, In Mark 4, Jesus gets in a boat because there's so many people on the shore and he preaches it. He preaches the message to these people. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. He needed to preach God's will to family. You know, if this was the case where he had just gone home, we might have never heard the parable of the sower, which is in Mark 4. So again, you can see this is not a slight against family, but really a recognition that God needs to be number one in our lives. Matthew tells us we are not to love anything on earth more than God. So Luke 14, 26 speaks the same message. But we get thrown off by the word hate. All scripture is God-bred and inerrant in its original context. So the original context is Greek, it's Hebrew, and it's Aramaic. Those are the original. That's the inerrant scripture. But when we translate that sometimes, It takes off different meanings. And let me give you an example of why this is complicated when we translate. You look at all the translations that are out there of Scripture. There's a lot of different ways to to analyze a text where they're trying to take Greek and make it into English. Let's look at a word uh, in English that has multiple meanings. Uh, The word key. It has a huge semantical range or the different meanings of the word. A key can be a key you put in your door. It can be a key to a map, a symbolic map. It can be the key of G as a musical tone, right? As a musical idea. It can be a key as in a piano key. And it can also be the key to an argument. So it has five different meanings. All to one word, one three-letter word, key. And so you can see if you study language or if you've taken another language that translation is, can be hard at times. So let's look at the word in Greek for hate, which is uh, miss you. 
The English dictionary defines the word hate as to, be, uh, as to feel hostility or animosity towards one or to detest. Now, the definition of miss you in the Greek is different. It does say one of the definitions is to have a strong aversion towards, to detest or to hate. But it has another word, uh, definition, and it's this, to become disinclined to, disfavor, or the literal translation is to love less. To love less. This is uh, apparent in uh, the, the Hebrew counterpart in, in Proverbs. It talks about loving less. They use the word hate, but really it means to love less. Jesus is saying that we need to hate, to detest, to feel hostile towards our biological family. It just doesn't fit into the context of the rest of Scripture we are looking at. We need to view Scripture as a whole book. See, we're called to love our wives as Christ loved the church, to respect and honor our father and our mother. With our new understanding of semantic range, I think Luke 14, 26 is more correctly translated as anyone who doesn't love less their father and mother, wife and children, brother and sister, yes, even their own life. Such a person cannot be my disciple. This love less is love less everything but God. It's the heart behind the passage. Matthew 10 verse 37 makes it clear that we must follow God first and then our family So what can we take out of this? I think the first thing is clear. Don't let anyone, including your family or yourself, come between you and God or his plan for you. There are times in our lives when we can feel called to do something, either small or big. And we have opposition from family or maybe even self, our own emotions going on. This is especially apparent in households that have non-Christian members, but not always. God's perfect uh, purpose and plan for our lives is paramount because he has a plan that will give us purpose in life, feeling a sense of calling. As a side note, I think we need to look at the fact that it's not saying that we should be abusive to our family in the name of Christ. I think there's many... uh, of the past Protestant Christianity saints that have really pushed off the needs of their family for what they feel was ministry. But the reality is that that person who puts ministry in, in this sense as a priority over their family needs is not actually worshiping Jesus, but is instead worshiping ministry altogether. You see, Matthew 10 and 14 is telling us that we need to disengage, even reject our loyalties to family, and even ourselves, not all the time, but in the face of not being able to follow Jesus with our whole heart. And you know what the amazing result of putting Jesus first in our lives is that we're actually going to be a better father. We're going to be a better husband when we do this we'll actually be able to do better at being a family to our kids and to our wives 
if we put Jesus first. Well, if we move now to Mark 3:31 to 34, 35, the passage takes uh, it a little farther. It takes it to the idea of family. See, Jesus is not just calling us to put God first in our lives. Jesus makes it clear that when you accept him as your savior, the idea of a family needs to be recalibrated. This idea of recalibrated uh, is to, to return to the manufacturer's specifications, the original manufacturer's specifications, what God intended family to be. We need to radically redefine our idea of family. Anyone who does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. What Jesus is saying is when we uh, come to believe in him, to trust in him, we gain a massive extended family. We have a huge support network that Jesus has placed in our lives to love and to be loved in. And we are united in the work God is doing in each of our hearts. This fits perfectly with the area we live in, in Vancouver. I was talking to my buddy David uh, at small group last week, and he mentioned a study uh, that was the study... uh, it's a long-winded uh, study, so let me, let me get it out here. The Vancouver Foundation 2012 Metro Vancouver Survey in Canada on Connection and Engagement is the study. And what it found was out of all of the cities in Canada, all the major cities, Metro Vancouver has the loneliest population. The loneliest. And there's several factors that play into that, but this is what this study found. And God's heart breaks. Because this is not how he created us to be. He created us to be family, to love each other, to be in family, together as one. Not biological family, the family of Christ. Some of you might know the Olenek story a little bit, but you probably don't know that uh, when we first came to Jericho, we were actually quite damaged. We were quite hurt and broken. At the last place I worked, Kim and I really got beat up. And I was at a place where I didn't know if I would ever be a youth pastor again. I was working construction and we were hurt. We were lost, floating from church to church. It was a really hard time. We longed for healing and we longed for a relationship. But what was so amazing is that we found healing here at Jericho. Not many pastors can say this. Not many pastors can say that we came to a church, got healed, and then started ministry. Usually it's the other way around. A pastor will, will come to a church because he takes a position at the church, and then he finds his family. We got the amazing opportunity to do that in reverse. We found a family that loved us, a pastoral staff that loved us, A small group that we can live life with. We found all this first. And then we started volunteering. And then we took on a pastoral position. 
but we came to Jericho as Mike and Kim, not Pastor Mike and Kim. Jericho loved us into pastoral ministry, and the truth is, Kim and I still, three years later, still feel that love and support by, by you guys, by youth parents, by the elders, by the pastors. Yes, I'm a pastor at this church, but Kim and I have firsthand experience of the love that can happen at Jericho. Jericho grasps it at least a little bit, and we felt it. See, this is what Jesus is talking about. You know, there are some horrible situations in your biological families, I know. And there are some other people that have great things going on in, in their biological families. But no matter what situation you are going through, no matter what you're facing, know this. You have a family here at Jericho. You have a family in Christ Jesus. You have brothers and sisters that want to pray with you, walk alongside you, and live life with you. You have brothers and sisters that want to challenge you, that want to uplift you. We are family because we are united in the fact that we have an Abba Father, an eternal Father, that sent his one and only Son to die, pay for, and raise from the dead our sins and death. He defeated both in one fell swoop, and it was for us. And he's created family in this. We are family because we have aligned purpose to love God and share his love with people at our church and people in the community. Jesus' message has always been love. It's the heart of the passage. And so I think as we retool, as we recalibrate our idea of family, here's a saying that we can look to. It says, true family comes not through blood, but by grace. True family comes not through blood, but by grace. So we as Christians, if we are ready or willing to kind of look at this, we radically have to alter our view of family. We need to train our brain that is engraved that family is biological, blood, and instead look at it as the body of believers through the grace of Jesus Christ and him alone. Now, blood and grace, they can hang out. Our biological families and our, and our, our uh, family in the church, they can hang out. But the essence behind the switch is that Jesus created family and community for us. I don't know what your experience is with Christians, but if we are going to embrace the teachings of Jesus, we need to radically switch our thinking on what family looks like. We need to understand that our Christian relationships are forged through Jesus Christ himself. And that our true family is not blood family, but by grace. So with this switching in mentality, I think there's a couple things we need to realize. The first is this that I've, that I've said already. Jesus makes us family. This is not to say that we're going to snuff our uh, biological family. Actually, Jesus talks about how we are supposed to be good husbands, good wives, good fathers, and good mothers. 
don't, don't get me wrong with this, okay? We are to be with our family, our biological family. We have, they have needs and we need to meet those needs. But Jesus made us all one big old happy extended family. Second point, in our switching our mentality, is this might shock, I don't think it'll shock many people, but biological families, they're messy, right? They're messy. The same thing is true about God's family until the second coming. It's no different. Family is messy, and if you are looking for the perfect church, Jericho ain't it. And the church down the road ain't it. And the church in California or in Boston or in the Vatican, that ain't it either. If that's your search, it's going to be a fruitless effort because it doesn't exist. On another note, if you believe that the church has made this illusion that we're perfect or that we're better than everybody else, first I want to say I'm sorry. I'm sorry that the church has given this illusion. And secondly, let me try to clear it up for you. The first and last Sunday of the month, we do something called Soros, right guys? Get together with uh, Kim and I and, and the youth. And we talk about stuff that matters to youth. And it's a good time. We have a lot of good discussions. Well, I remember my first couple sources. You remember we were doing essential theology. And uh, after telling them that God loves them, that God has put an immense love on our heart for them, I said something in a prayer, didn't I, Jordan? And you remember it to this day. It's, it's actually uh, a running joke in our youth ministry. What, what is that? What, what did I say? <laughs> yeah. I said we all suck. <laughs> it was in a prayer. And I was saying, God, I'm sorry that we all suck. To which an immediate response from one of the youth, hey. <laughs> well, you know what? It's the truth. The truth is that we're all just a bunch of sinners. Every single one in this room are a bunch of sinners. We're all a bunch of sinners saved by grace. Every one of us. Even Pastor Brad. The elders, the ushers, the new family down the road that just started attending. We are all imperfect people saved by a perfect God. And I hope you get that. That if we are going to be a family, it's going to be messy at times. Because we're imperfect. But we need to be family together. So what are the repercussions on our lives? If family is, is going to be messy and we're called to be a family of believers together here at Jericho. And in the greater family to all the churches in, in Langley and around the world. What, what does that look like? Well, I think it's obvious that we need to love each other as family. And I think in our, in our practice, 
I don't think Jesus created the church. I definitely don't think. Jesus did not create the church to happen from 10.30 in the morning until 12. He didn't add on the extra 45 minutes where we go up for prayer uh, before for church. And by the way, join us anytime you want. We pray at 9.45 for this church and for you, and you can come up and do that. But that's not where Jesus said, okay, that's church. Jesus designed us to be in community, to be family. So it's going out with a coffee with a brother and sister in this church. Or maybe it's having somebody over for lunch after church or during the week. Maybe it's a dinner. See how we have to totally revamp our idea of family? It's the Sumners putting on a crock pot of soup before church and inviting somebody over afterwards, not knowing who it would be, but say, hey, let's make a crock pot soup and let's have some people over. Or it's the Schachters inviting their family over at Christmas time. I don't know if you know what the Schachters do, but they have a family tradition where they have fully embraced the idea as family as being more than their biological family. And they will invite for Christmas dinner family, friends, people from our church. It's awesome. That's a way to embrace family. It's having a barbecue and inviting our biological family and our church family. It's inviting our, the neighborhood kid to play street hockey with us and your family. You could be much more creative than I can. I'll stop the examples. But it is clear that we need to radically shift the way we do family. And this is how. I think we need to have an attitude of love. This is how we go into it. We need to be quick first to ask for forgiveness. Quick. Jesus is very clear. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Which is actually part of the second point, not the first point. (laughs) But we need to forgive others as Christ forgave us. The second point is that we need to be quick to forgive. If you're here from another church, just as another side note, and you have a strife or some situation that led you away from the church that has been unresolved, please go and make that right. We are the church, the body of Christ. And so if there is something in your life where you go, okay, I didn't didn't make amends here. Please go to that church next Sunday. Deal with that issue. Seek restoration because that's what Jesus wants. He wants us to forgive. And he wants us to love each other in that way. He wants us to resolve our issues quickly and in a loving way. The third attitude we can take on in embracing our church family is we need to be a people that encourage each other, pray together, uplift and challenge each other to go deeper with God. Does this excite you about a church? The stuff that's listed here? Some of this is happening at Jericho. It excites me. I want to invite people to a church that has this, that treats everybody as family. Are you with me on this? awesome then the buck stops here starts with each of us starts with you and it starts with me 
embracing an attitude of love for our family. If you want to grow in your relationship with family, the most natural way that it can happen is by living missionally. To get out there and serve with our community, with our family, serving the community. If you're finding it hard to bridge the gap and grow in your relationships with your, your church family, go serve together. There's nothing better that you can do than that. Stretch yourself and your kids and your idea of family. Take another family from this church, which is your family, and go to the gateway of hope and look for opportunities to serve. Or maybe it's starting smaller than that. Maybe it's looking to your community. Maybe it's getting together with a couple of people in this church, our family, and planning a block party in your neighborhood and inviting all the neighbors. Or maybe it's putting aside your next big old family vacation that you had planned to go to somewhere hot and instead going somewhere hot and sweaty with the Cottrells. Going down to Guatemala and serving there and forming family that way. There is no better way to grow in our relationships with each other than to be living missionally, serving together. Just go ask anybody from the Guatemala team if they came back and didn't feel more connected to the people that they went down with. I was talking to Sue Cottrell earlier about that, and I just think that's amazing. Maybe it's being a part of a group like Tyler and Lindsay's small group that gets together, and they talk about serving, they read scripture about serving, and then they just go do it. Living life together as family. Maybe it starts with just a simple commitment to join a small group and to go in. If you've been in small groups before, instead of going in with, I'm just going to be part of small groups, just one of the things I do, it's Tuesdays. Going in with the idea that you are going to be authentic, that you are going to walk alongside your small group and live life in community and family together. If that's your desire, go talk to Pastor Keith. He, he runs our small groups. He'd love to get you in to the small group f- program when it starts up. Or if there's enough people, we'll just start a small group in the summer. Let's be family together. Well, there's one more point, so bear with me. One more part of this. You see, if we were to just say that we need to be a one old big happy family and we forgot about God's command to go and make disciples then we are missing a part of scripture. You see, this is not an invitation to snuff your uh, uh, non-Christian biological family, and it's also not an invitation to become inwardly focused, because the Bible makes it clear that we are blessed to be a blessing. Within this radical recalibration of family, we need to understand that we are called to extend the family. We need tons of stories in our church of how, and we have lots, but we need more of how people were loved into the kingdom, into the family of God. So I think this whole entire message can be broke down into two basic phrases. Jesus' call in Mark 3, Matthew 10, and Luke 14 are the same. God is number one, is the first thing. 
And the second is that true family is not through blood, but by grace. I don't know about you, but after writing this, uh, I'm feeling a little overwhelmed. (laughs) This is quite a cultural shift. Family is family is family when you're looking at biological family. But it's what God calls us to do, to look outside of our biological family to our church family, to love on them, to invite people to join the family as well. So it's overwhelming. And uh, what, what time do we have here? Maybe we'll get the worship team to come up. And when something's overwhelming, the best thing we can do is pray. So we're going to take a minute here. And we're going to quiet our hearts before God. And just think on the concept, on, on, on what's been said today. Allow God, allow the Holy Spirit to infuse your heart and your mind and your will. So Holy Spirit, as we pray, as we just sit and we listen, won't you come? Won't you change our hearts? Won't you fill us? If God is sharing something with you right now, just completely ignore me. But I just wanted to mention that if you are here today and you are not yet a part of the family of Jesus, I want to say that the door is open. There's food prepared. Jesus wants to have dinner with you. Jesus wants to come in and fill your heart and fill you with his presence. He wants you to be a part of the family. If you're hurting today, right now, make that commitment. You can pray a simple prayer that has lifelong impact. Jesus, I know I'm with a bunch of sinners in this room. I know I'm a sinner and I know you died and rose again from the grave for my sins. I want you to come into my life. I want you to change me. I want you to make me into the person you know I can be. I want to be a part of your family. Thank you that your family is always growing and that you accept me this is you make sure you talk to some family after this your church family we want to celebrate with you we want to pray with you we want to start to live life with you and the second thing if you're here today and you've heard this message and want to embrace church family I really take this time right now we're just going to have a couple minutes Ruth Ellen's going to play on the synth and allow God to come in to your attitudes and your mind and just to throw everything upside down so that you can be following God's will. You can be filled with the Spirit in what He wants for your life. We're going to have a prayer team as well. So prayer team, you can come to the side on either side of the stage. Jody and Curtis and Brad will be there if you want prayer. And then we're just going to spend a couple times. I'm going to stop talking. 
meet with God.